seen it. I don't even know where I'm going to be walking. So if you're there at the parade, holler at me and I'll try to wave and not trip over my own two feet. Today's passage in Hebrews 5, and it's going to be in verses 1 through 10, it's actually a continuation of the thought that the author of Hebrews began in chapter 4, uh, verse 14, that uh, my friend Monda covered last week. And so it's just a continuation of that thought. The author continues on with giving an explanation of why the Hebrew Christians, and we as well, can hold fast to our confession. And the reason that he gives is because we have such a great and superior high priest in Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll recall, this letter to the Hebrews, originally we said it was probably a sermon. It's kind of written in sermonic form and was delivered to Hebrew Christians who were being pressured and tempted to step back from their faith in Jesus, and, and they were being tempted and pressured to revert back into some of the Old Covenant Jewish ways. And the author of Hebrews is giving them reason after reason why they should not do this, but instead should hold fast to their confession of faith. And now, Lord willing, my goal this morning is that you would see the role and qualifications of the high priest, that you would see how Jesus fills that role, and what it means for us as we follow him on a daily basis. So go ahead and follow along as I read from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and apply it. God, as we come to your word, I pray that our hearts uh, would carry the attitude of obedience, that we would decide here and now that what we have heard in your word and what the implications and applications of your word are in our lives, that we would obey them that we would truly give you that blank check and say, God, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. No matter what the cost is, that's what I'm going to do. I pray that would be all of our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that uh, in my speaking I would be clear, that if there's anything that's just of me, that you would clear that out, God, that you would, you would speak clearly to your people from your word, that you'd help me to explain it clearly, that you would help me to... Uh, uh, be thoughtful and wise in how I've worded things, and if there's anything that I need to change, that you would guide me. God, I pray that uh, 
you would be glorified. Jesus, would you, you increase this morning? May I decrease. You be big, Jesus. This is about you. It's for you. It's not about me or anyone else. It's about you, Jesus. I pray you would speak to your people in your word and that we would have ears to hear and, and, and hearts that would understand and be changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In order to understand Jesus' activity as our high priest, I, I titled this message, Our Atoning High Priest. Our Atoning High Priest. And in order to understand Jesus' activity as our high priest, we need to look at what the role of the high priest was so that if you're taking notes is where we're going to start is the role of the high priest. See, the office of high priest was hereditary in that you had to be in the line of Aaron, you had to be a descendant of Aaron in order to get the role. It was the, the high priest was the man in charge of the temple or the tabernacle worship. And scripture uses a few different uh, phrases or a few different uh, titles to refer to the high priest. And I'm not going to, we're not going to read all these passages, but I'm going to list them for you if you want to write them down real quick, or if you want to get them later, it's fine. But that high priest role is referred to as, in Exodus 31, uh, 10, it's referred to as the priest. In Leviticus 4, 3, it's referred to as the anointed priest. In 2 Chronicles 26, 20, it's referred to as the chief priest. And in 2 Kings 12, 10, is referred to as the high priest. So you've got the priest, the anointed priest, the chief priest, the high priest. It's the, it's the main priest dude. Okay? You can quote me on that. The main priest dude. All right? Generally speaking, the high priest served for life. However, sometimes, sometimes there were political reasons that would end with the removal of the high priest. In an ideal situation, the high priest was someone uh, that was fully committed to the Lord and ritually pure. They were to always be ready to do the Lord's will. And we read in Scripture that there was a special level of holiness that was required of the one serving as high priest. And these qualifications are found in the book of Leviticus. We're not going to go there now, but they're found in the book of Leviticus. This means that this guy, the high priest, had to steer clear of contact with the dead to avoid being defiled. Now, this would also include his own parents if they died. There were no outward signs of mourning that were allowed, so outward signs of mourning were forbidden. He had to stay in the sanctuary precincts, and these limits identified him as someone who was totally dedicated to the Lord. So, you've got him... Uh, sort of set apart in what he can and can't do. So in action, you've got him set apart in like physically where he is, like lo locally, like locationally. He has to be in these, these sanctuary precincts. And then you will see later, he actually will have clothing that, <laughs> that separates him out as uh, the high priest as well. And they, those limits, those things, they identified him as someone who was totally dedicated to the Lord and the Lord's work. If this guy sinned, if the high priest sinned, it brought guilt upon all the people. 
I cannot emphasize how big of a deal this was and how important it would have been for the first audience of this letter, how, how important they would have realized that that was. When you start talking about the high priest and how important he was in their, in their culture and their religion. If he sinned, he brought guilt on all the people. Now, the sin offering required for the high priest that he had to offer for himself, right? The sin offering that he had to offer was the same that was required if, uh, quote, the whole congregation of Israel commits error, unquote. So it was the same offering. When it was time to consecrate the high priest, there was an elaborate process. It was a seven-day ritual which involved special baths, dressing in special garments, which I'll go into in a moment, and anointing with oil and with blood, okay? Uh, Now, I'm not a priest, I'm a pastor, okay? But when I was ordained to the ministry, no one anointed me with blood. I'm real thankful that that's a thing that's not done anymore, (laughs) because I don't particularly care for blood, (laughs) unless it's in my steak. Anyway, before it's cooked, before it's cooked. All right. Let me read uh, about these special garments. This is from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. I, they just, the, the way they describe these, uh, these garments. The special garments of the high priest included a blue robe and an ornate hem decorated with gold bells and embroidered pomegranates an ephod of fine linen with colorful embroidered work and shoulder straps bearing stones engraved with the names of the 12 tribes, a breastplate with 12 precious stones engraved with the names of the 12 tribes, and a linen turban with a gold plate inscribed, Holy to Yahweh. The engraved plate and the stones engraved with the tribal names highlight the role of the high priest as the holy representative of all Israel before the Lord. In his breastplate of judgment, the high priest kept the sacred lots, the Urim and Thummim, which were used to inquire of the Lord. So this guy was ornately dressed. There were special... And uh, did you notice that every piece of the garment had some kind of significance? The holy... uh, Excuse me. the, The high priest also took part, in addition to that... And in his role as high priest, he also took part in the general duties of being a priest in Israel. He was the only one who was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, but only on the Day of Atonement. Now, the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, was a section of the temple or the tabernacle that was separated from just the holy place. You got the holy place, and then the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies. And it was divided... The, the most holy place was divided from the holy place by a curtain or a veil, and, and we'll get back to that in a minute. But the high priest was the only one who got to go back there and perform uh, the duties of the high priest as commanded by the Lord. He was the only one that could go back there in the presence of the Lord. When the high priest died, when the high priest died, it marked the end of an epoch. Now, if anyone was guilty of involuntary manslaughter, they had killed someone accidentally, they were required to remain in a city of refuge until the high priest died. And at the end of that epoch, at the end of that high priest's life, then they could go. This position of high priest 
was a big deal. Why do I explain all Well, I explain all that not just so you have all this big head of knowledge. I want us to understand that when the Word of God says that Jesus is our high priest, and particularly in Hebrews, remember the main theme running through Hebrews is Jesus is better, Jesus is superior, so that Jesus is our superior high priest, he is better than all these other human guys that came before. His position was a big deal. So much of the lives of the Jewish people actually hinged around the performance of the duties of the high priest as their representative before God. Remember, he is the one who represented them, making atonement through sacrifice for their sins. But in verse 2, so we've got the, the role of the high priest, but what about the qualifications of the high priest? Don't we? I mean, when you go get a job, right? When you apply for a job, you put out your resume, right? You go and they give you, what's the role? What are you doing, right? But before you get the job and get your job description or the role, there's qualifications, like you got to have this education and this experience and this, and if you apply for it and you don't ha- meet those qualifications in our world, you're, you're probably not getting that job unless you can do a real good job explaining why something you've got meets that. So what are the qualifications of the high priest? Well, first, what do we see? Well, first, we see in verse 2, look at it, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The qualification of the high priest is he's, he's to deal gently, or can deal gently, is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. So I want to look at those two words, ignorant and wayward, okay? Because most of us are not chawing at the bit to say, I'm ignorant or I'm wayward, right? Those aren't like words that are typically thought of as real positive in our world, right? So what does he mean by ignorant? These are those who were ignorant because of their lack of knowledge of God. Now, if you were an Israelite and ignorant of God, it is because you were willfully ignorant of God. The entire Jewish history and their culture was built around their knowledge of God. Parents were to train their children in the law and meditate on it day and night. Proverbs 7, 1 through 3 says, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. If you were growing up Jewish and living in that culture, for you to not have knowledge of God, you would have to will that so like that you would have to be doing that on purpose god had set up a system of festivals for them that included public recitation of god's acts and a public reading of the law this was so the israelites would know and fear him better you would really really have to work you got all these festivals going on and you've got all those things going on in your culture we don't understand that because that's not what our culture is okay Um, but they had all these things going on that were built around a knowledge of God. So you would have to really work to be ignorant of God in that situation. You'd have to deliberately be disregarding and forsaking God's law. And I wonder this morning if that might describe someone here. Does this describe where your heart has been dwelling? 
Have you been willfully ignorant of God's law, being purposefully running from God's law? Would you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for new life? So you must deal gently with the ignorant. The high priest also had to deal gently with the wayward. Deal gently with the wayward. Your translation, if you've, I, I use the English Standard Version, most of you know that by now, but uh, your translation that you've got may say, uh, you may use the word astray, okay, instead of wayward, it may use the word astray. Think of this wayward person or this person gone astray as someone who has allowed themselves to wander from the things of God. This may not be outright rebellion as the ignorant person, but someone who wanders in their thoughts or habits. Maybe you see yourself in that today. Maybe you would say, yes, yes, pastor, that describes where I'm at in my life right now. To you, I would also beg of you to repent and trust the good news of the gospel and let Jesus deal gently with you because he is our great high priest and he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. So the high priest was able to not just deal gently, but he was actually able to identify with both the ignorant and the wayward because he was also a human and as a finite being was also beset with weakness. So these are the high priests of Israel. He was, says, says they were able to identify with the, the wayward, the ignorant, because they were beset with weakness. He, he was able to deal with gentleness and compassion towards these kinds of people because he understands what it is to be wayward and ignorant and to be tempted in those ways. He was able to sympathize. Able to sympathize. That's the second qualification. Able to sympathize. The high priest was not only able to sympathize with the people because he understood what they experienced, but he actually had to offer up sacrifices for his sin before he could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So before he could go into the holy place, he had to deal with his own sin. And it was to the point that he couldn't even enter the presence of God on behalf of the people prior to offering atonement for his own sin. So he under, this guy understood there was sin on the people because he had sin on himself and he had to make atonement for his sin before he could make atonement for the sin of people. Now, Jesus, as our high priest, we're going to get to that in a minute, he had no sin. But we're going to get to why he can fully understand and deal gently with the wayward and the ignorant. So the high priest was able to deal gently uh, with the wayward and the ignorant. He was uh, able to sympathize with those, uh, those who needed God's forgiveness for their sin. They needed their sin atoned for. And number three, he was divinely appointed. The priesthood was not a volunteer position. Aaron, who was the first high priest when, when the priesthood was established, he did not fill out an application and submit it online. There was no indeed.com for this. He didn't go through an interview. He didn't go to churchleaders.com and enter a resume. He was not elected by the people either. The people didn't take a vote and vote him into office. He was called by God to be the high priest. And being called by God emphasizes the element of servanthood and humility that marked the position of high priest. It wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't put in that job because he's so great. He's put in that job because God chose him to be. 
It was a high honor, but it was not characterized by exalting yourself, but by a motivation to serve God and the people. So he's divinely appointed. Now, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus' superior ordination. If you're taking notes, that's the third main point, was Jesus' ordination was superior to other high priest's ordinations. The ordination of the high priest, as I've described, was an elaborate process. Seven days, special baths, special clothes. So why was Jesus' superior? Well, one is he passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God. Jesus' was superior, for starters, because he's God, the Son of God. He did not assume the role on his own but was appointed by God. Well, that sounds like that's one of the qualifications of a high priest. He didn't assume the role on his own, but God appointed him to the role. Jesus is like the other high priests in that he was appointed by God. Now, the quote here, you'll, you'll notice in your, uh, and, and, and the author of Hebrews does this a lot. He quotes a lot of Scripture because, as we said, he believes that the best uh, way to interpret Scripture is with other Scripture, right? And so, He quotes here from Psalm 2, uh, verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So here's the thing. Jesus did not seek his own glory, but to bring glory to the Father by completing his mission. Jesus was obedient in the acceptance of his role. And that keeps with what we read about Jesus in Philippians 2. We, we went through Philippians a few months back, maybe several months back at this point. And that keeps in what we read about Jesus and his humility in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men.'" And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what do we need to understand? Why is Jesus a superior high priest? Well, he was appointed by God. He did not aspire to greatness as we do. He did not aspire to greatness. He exhibited perfect humility and a proper obedient attitude. Yet, he understands what we go through. He understands what we go through. So as we're looking at Jesus, that's the next thing we've got to consider. Jesus was able to greater sympathize than regular high priests. Not only was he greater and that he is God, the Son of God who passed through the heavens, that he was called by God, that he did not aspire to greatness because there, there was no sin or, or a, a non-humble way about him, but also Jesus is able to sympathize greater than regular high priests. Well, pastor, that sounds interesting since he, we know he had no sin, and you said, well, the other guy uh, had besetting sin, so he understood it. Well, how? Let me explain. Jesus has superior sympathy. Last week we heard, Monda pointed this out, 
And Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He can do so even greater than other high priests because the one who has been tempted but never given in can fully understand temptation, its effects, and and fully understand what temptation is, the power and the weight of temptation and sin. Jesus is able to sympathize with with what we go through. He understands our weaknesses better than we do, and he understands our great need before a holy God because he never gave in to that temptation. Now, there is a guy mentioned towards the end of this. Actually, he's mentioned in verse 6, and he's mentioned at the end of verse 10. A guy named Melchizedek. Most of you probably, that's not your middle name. It's not a name we use a lot. Kind of a mysterious guy in Scripture. Kind of weird that he would pop up here when we're just reading through it. So I want to spend a moment talking about Melchizedek. We're not going to spend a long time, but I want to spend a moment because I think it's important. So what's the deal with Melchizedek? Sound like Jerry Seinfeld. What's the deal with Melchizedek? That was a terrible impression. What is Melchizedek? We're just going to call him Mel, okay? That's a name I don't hear a lot anymore. We had this guy in Winterset, Iowa, when I was growing up, named Mel Penrod. Everybody just called him Mel, right? It wasn't Melvin. It was, we just called him Mel. Then I had a, a friend named Melody in college, and we just called her Mel, too. So anyway, I just don't hear that name as much anymore. I don't know if you know a Mel, but it just seems like Mel ought to be in a bowling league somewhere, right? Uh, anyway, so, so Melchizedek, or Mel, what does he have to do with the priesthood of Jesus? He's, he's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It's really interesting. He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. He pops up in Genesis and then again in Psalm 110. First introduction to him is in Genesis chapter 14, and it's in verses 17 through 24 and his interaction with Abraham. So I want to read that in Genesis chapter 14, 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. So that's Melchizedek in Genesis. And he doesn't pop up again until Psalm 110. He's pretty mysterious. We find that he's the king of Salem. So he's a, and king of Salem means king of righteousness. Now, he's a Gentile. And he's living in pagan territory. And yet, king of Salem, king of righteousness. Now, 
We're going to look at this mysterious character a little more later in the book of Hebrews. But in this passage in Genesis, we see Melchizedek, Mel, who is a king doing something that wasn't common to kings in that he offered bread and wine. He's identified as a priest of God Most High, this guy, Gentile, living in pagan territory early on in the Old Testament, is identified as a priest of God Most High. For some mysterious reason, God had appointed a priest for himself from a foreign people. God brings this king to Abraham with whom God had established a covenant. So God had established a covenant with Abram, and he brings this guy, this Melchizedek, before Abram. He blesses Abraham, and old Abe's response back to him is to give him a tenth of everything. At that point, Mel is gone. He's gone from the story, and he doesn't appear again until Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 says this. You need to understand it's the Psalm of David, but it says this. The Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's important when we come to a mysterious character like Melchizedek to not let ourselves get too derailed by the mystery of the passage because ultimately, we got to remember this passage isn't about Melchizedek. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. As with much prophecy, there's an immediate fulfillment and then a later ultimate fulfillment. So when, when prophecy is given in the Bible, there's usually a message that is kind of immediate or more, more current, and then there is a future or ultimate fulfillment of it as there is with this. So the immediate fulfillment of this from Psalm would be David's rule fulfilling it. But its ultimate fulfillment came through David's line in the person of Jesus Christ. The reference to a priest forever points to the messianic nature of Christ's priesthood, and it distinguishes his priesthood from all others. The other high priest's service ended. So it says he's a priest forever, the order of Melchizedek. The other high priests, the guys in the special clothes, their service ended. Their service ended because they died. They died, they were gone. They had to be continually replaced. But Jesus' priesthood never ends because he rose from the dead, never to die again, and he rules forever. So why would it say Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek then? Because Mel was chosen by God. Jesus' priesthood is born, quote, according to the order, unquote. It was born out of the sovereignty of God. It's a priesthood chosen by God, called by God, and for His glory. Okay? 
We're going to get back into Melchizedek later in the book of Hebrews, but I wanted to mention it here. So if that's our high priest, if Jesus is our great superior high priest, the next question we got to ask is, because we talked about how he's totally, ultimately qualified, right? He ultimately can fill that role. What does our high priest do? What does our high priest do? I mean, that's number five on this main point list is our high priest secures our salvation by his substitutionary death. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, if we look at the the kind of back half of that passage, verses 7 through 10 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although... He was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does this mean? Jesus, as our high priest, was our go-between, our ultimate representative before God. He was our substitute who stood before God, represented us before God, lived a perfect life that we could not live. Like, the, you're, you're called to live and to not sin, and guess what? You have sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all missed the mark, right? That's an archery term. That's why I do the bow thing, right? Uh, sin, missed the mark because of sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He did things right because you can't, you won't fully, right? He lived a perfect life in our place. He represented us before God on the cross. He died a death of a criminal in our place for our sin as our substitute and was three days later raised from the dead as a first fruit of the resurrections of the resurrection as a first fruit of those to be raised. He stood condemned in our place, standing as a substitute for sinners so that we could be reconciled to God and glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Jesus is the only one who has everything necessary to be our superior and great high priest, and you can't add anything to that. He's the only one who had everything necessary. He's the only one who could accomplish this. He did it perfectly and permanently, and he knew there was no other way. He saw the depth of the chasm of sin between God and man, and he willingly stepped in as our great high priest. So what does that mean? What do we do with that? The very Son of God has been our go-between. Not just some man in a fancy turban, Not just some dude, but the perfect God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And we can go straight to God only because our great high priest offered a final sacrifice for sin, which was himself on the cross. Not only that, 
but he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he sits at the very right hand of God and we can boldly approach the throne of grace because our high priest has made that way open for us. It's the only way we get to pray and have relationship with God is because Jesus is our great high priest because he opened that way for us. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember me talking about the veil that separated in the temple the, the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple, that curtain that separated the holy and the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. Okay? Like someone at the top went zrip and separated out. So now... Not just some guy could go in there once a year, but we can all have access through Jesus to the throne of grace. There was no longer a need for another go-between because Jesus was the permanent and superior go-between for God and man. His death made it possible for us to go boldly before the throne of God. And he continues to be our high priest and our mediator between God and man. This is why, this is why we can hold fast. This is why we can hold fast. It's why we can draw near as we saw in what Josh preached last week. Jesus is not just the reason for us to draw near and hold fast, but he's the very reason why we can hold fast and draw near. Without Jesus, you could not draw near to God. Without Jesus, you could not hold fast to the confession of Jesus. He is not just the way and the means and the end. He's the prize. He's the way and he's the destination. James Boyce commented this, the reason the saints will persevere is that Jesus has done everything necessary for their salvation. Since he has made a perfect atonement for their sin, and since God has sworn to accept Jesus' work, the believer can be as certain that he or she will be in heaven as that Jesus himself will be there. I told you at the beginning of this sermon that the passage is it's connected. It's a continuation of the previous one where we're told to hold fast and boldly approach. And in both of those circumstances, and, and as I touch on this, I'm going to invite our musicians to come on back to the stage and, and get ready to play. But I want to point something out to you, because if you skip back to the verses that Manda preached last week, it's in the end of chapter 4, right before today's passage. It, beginning in verse 14, it says, "...since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God." Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to point out that Jesus being our high priest is the reason the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, 
You don't need to go back into Old Covenant Jewish ways. You don't need the festivals. You don't need the animal sacrifices. You don't need to go back into any of that because Jesus fulfilled the law. Hold fast to your confession and draw near to God. But what I want to point out is when the author writes that, he uses two little words. He says, let us, not let us, but let us. He included himself in this. He included himself in this. He includes himself because he's not some holy roller high horse about how much better he is. He includes himself because he knows the danger that all of his readers face and the danger he faces is that we would not hold fast or that we would not boldly approach the throne of grace even though those of us who have repented of sin and trusted in the gospel of Christ can freely do so anytime we desire. He knows the danger of drift. He's written about it. He knows the danger of the mounting pressure from the world and the culture around us. In their case, it was the Jewish culture trying to get them to go back into old, old covenant ways. He knows the danger of the mounting pressure from the world, the mounting pressure from the culture around us. He knows the danger of going along with what is popular so that people won't call you names. And he would say loudly to us this morning, hold fast. Do not give in. When he says hold fast, hold firm to your boldness, your confidence, and boast in Christ to the end. Hold fast to your confession. F.F. Bruce tells us that the title Son of God is used in relation to the confession. In context, Jesus being designated as the Son of God echoes that confession. It's the confession of the gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. Hold fast to it. By the strength of the Lord, hold fast to him and boldly approach the throne of grace. Monda spoke so well uh, on prayer and the importance of prayer last week that it needs to be like breathing for a Christian. Only because of Jesus being our high priest and our substitutionary sacrifice can we approach with persistent, confident prayer. Look, I don't know where you are this morning. I, I don't know what's going on in your heart. You might be one of those in the camp that I talked about earlier, the camp of the ignorant who, who's purposefully being ignorant of God, purposefully running from God's ways. Or you might be in the camp of maybe saying, I'm, you're, I'm wayward and wandering away in your habits and your thoughts. Maybe you've not been approaching the throne of grace with confidence because you just don't know where you're at with your relationship with God. Whatever your need is this morning, you have a high priest who is able to deal gently with you. He's able to deal gently with you, and he will. Will you come to him? Will you repent of whatever sin is in your life and change the way you think about your sin and the way you act towards your sin and trust Him, trust His goodness, His love, and His completed work on the cross. Will you come to Him this morning? Wherever you're at, in whatever of those situations you find yourself in, will you come to the great high priest who made a way for us to go boldly before the throne? Would you stand with me and pray?
Dear God, as we come to this time of response where we will respond in our hearts to the message of your word, God, I pray that you would help us to not ignore you, to not walk out of here the same as we walked in. God, if we are uh, in the camp of ignorant, willfully running, I pray you would drive us to our knees. God, if we're wayward and we are wandering in thought and habit, I pray you would bring us quickly to repentance. God, if there are those here who say, you know, I have not been boldly approaching the throne of grace, I have not been praying, I have not been talking with God, I have not been seeking God in the Bible, I have not been doing those things because I'm not sure where I'm at with God, I pray you would give them the gift of repentance and trust in the gospel give them either a relationship with you that they don't have or that you would refresh and renew their hearts with you and bring them to repentance. I pray that if they need, they would boldly reach out and ask someone in this room, someone in this church for help that could disciple them and guide them in how to truly have a relationship with you, Jesus. God, I just want to be used by you. I pray you would do that with everyone in this room, that you would use us for your glory. God, there's no one in this room that's perfect, no one that has it all together, no one that knows all the answers. We acknowledge that, but we know you do. Help us to be willing to admit before you where we've sinned, to repent, to turn from it, and to be open and honest and that we could serve you by helping one another. Sanctify us in your truth, Jesus. We thank you. I thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to sing one final song.